Hello and welcome to the Shepherd Walwyn podcast series. My name is Jonathan Brown. Shepherd Walwyn is a campaigning book publisher based in London, England. Our purpose is to uncover and promote new ideas to society's oldest problems. And whilst our specialty is ethical economics, something Anthony Werner, our driving force for over 40 years, has pioneered, we have branched out over the years to other related areas such as the environment and the lives and works of society's change agents. These podcasts promote ideas we're convinced can actually help us build a better society for all of us. So have a listen and be sure to share with your friends if you like them, but also tell us what you think. These are debates we all need to be part of. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Welcome back to part three of the interview with Dom Frisby. I'm your host, Jonathan Brown. In this episode, we continue our conversation with investor comedian Dom and how he measures freedom by the size of the government. Essentially, the bigger the government, the more damage it does. And we also look at the level of incompetence and corruption in government today, what's likely to happen if we dramatically reduce the size of government, and also how taxation and major events in history seem to be inextricably linked. And one example we have of that is the American Civil War. Thanks very much for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. And when I look at the, the whole thing around, you know, life after the state and direct robbery was the whole thing is that the bigger the, the, the bigger the government is, the more damage it does. Um, is what yeah, I, I, th- I think so. My my. It's freedom is quite a hard thing to measure. And the, the measure of freedom that I use, like there's certain um founding principles first what Thatcher would call the first principle and one of my first principles is that the most innovative and inventive societies occur where freedom is highest and the least inventive and innovative societies are where freedom is lowest so that's a sort of general rule and you know you look at uh, you know, Venice, for example, uh, which emerged from the Roman Empire, people fleeing the Roman Empire, they had total freedom because they were on these marshes and there was nobody telling them what they could and couldn't do. They were limited by what they could do by the marshes, but they dealt with that. And they turned, you know, they built the Venetian Empire. You look at Northern Europe in the, in the uh, Middle Ages after it was freed from the shackles of Catholicism, and it became the most brilliantly inventive society in the world at that time. And then you go the other opposite extreme is, I don't know, North Korea or wherever, when, you know, what is, what is anyone in that society achieving at the moment? I don't know. Um, I mean, there are people achieving some things within the confines of where they live, of course, but it's not what you'd call a great society. You know, early Rome was a great society, uh, ancient Greece. And these were all very uh, free societies. And they all had very low levels of taxation. And I use taxation as a measure of freedom. That's my measure of freedom. How much of your labor do you own? Um, And in North Korea, you, you know, I don't think a worker owns any of his own labor. Or, or very little. I think in Soviet Russia, taxes a percentage of GDP was at roughly 78, 75%. There was 25% black market, something like that. And 
you know, in those great societies, taxes are percentage of GDP has been at 10, 15%. In the West today, it's at roughly 50%. It's probably more than 50% if you factor in, 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 in um, inflation. So, you know, over the course of your life, we think a house is the most expensive thing you ever buy. It isn't. Your government is the most expensive thing that you buy. And through all the various means, inflation, VAT, income tax, capital gains tax, inheritance tax, blah, blah, blah. Over the course of your life, roughly 50% of everything you ever earn will be taken from you and spent in a way with which you don't always agree. You, you would spend that money differently if you had the choice on how to spend it. So in the West, we're not as free as we think we are from one point of view, which is taxation. From the other point of view, there are more possibilities open to us than at any time in history because of technology and because of the enabling power of technology. So I'm now able to record this podcast with you. I don't even know where you are in the world, Jonathan. Um, but, you know, you could be in Timbuktu and I could be recording this podcast with you. The ability to communicate instantaneously with anyone in the world is a tremendously empowering thing. And technology has done that for us. iPhones, we can fly anywhere, we can drive anywhere. So as a result, even the poorest in the developed world today enjoy a, high, a standard of living that's probably higher than, you know, what Marie Antoinette had before she said, let them all cage. She had high status, but she didn't necessarily, she was... She couldn't fly anywhere in the world. She couldn't talk to anyone anywhere in the world. She couldn't watch TV. So, so in that sense, we're more empowered. We're more liberated in that sense. But, but we're still very heavily taxed. And I think we'd be much better off with much lower forms of taxation and, and, and lesser kinds of taxation. I'm a big uh, proponent of land value taxes, you know. But I don't see any realistic chance of that happening. <laughs> yeah, but there's a, one of the quotes in Life After the State, not from me, from somebody else, is find the right answer, realise you won't see it in your lifetime, but argue for it anyway because it's the right answer. And I always rather like that quote. And so, so yeah, we... I don't see government voluntarily ceding taxation. You know, there might be some principled chancellor or something who says we need lower taxes and abolishes a few taxes here and there but the whole machine that is the civil service and the education system and the health service and all that just requires on ever increasing levels of taxation and 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 they will lobby and control and do everything within their power manipulate propaganda infiltrate the education system and blah 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 to make sure those that money is secure not just for themselves but for their for the next generation as well I think what we're, what we're seeing, what's become apparent in the last two years is, is the level of incompetence in government um, and also the level of corruption as well, or some combination of the two. Um, and that's, that, for me, in the last two years has been the most disheartening thing. And, the, you know, and so you think, well, if there's less incompetence and less corruption and I have a choice, I can choose which services I take on board. Um, and that, that, you know, the, my NHS practice can, needs to come to me and say, Mr. Brown, this is why you need to be with us. And this is what we think we can offer you. Then I think people would start focusing on health more than illness, wouldn't they? Yeah. I mean, let's just take, you know, Mr. Mid-ranking civil servant. I don't think he's any more or less competent than I am. But when he is operating within the confines of the machine, when the goal of the machine is this, um, I don't think he achieves as much good that he would 
operating in a totally free market situation. Um, and you look at some of the things that have gone on, like it's just the hypocrisy drives you insane. So, you know, all those masks, how many billions were spent on those masks that, or, or that equipment that didn't work? And then you look at masks and they're going on about net zero and protecting the environment. And then they make those masks that take 5,000 years to degrade, make the compulsory. And then there's just like these mask mountains all over the world. And you're like, well, how is that environmentally friendly? You're lecturing me about not driving my car and you're doing that. Mm. So, um, yeah, there's, I, would you call that corruption, incompetence? Is that any one person's design? It's just the whole thing's just an unintended consequence. It's just so much waste at the government level. And people in control of their own money, for the most part, wouldn't waste money like that. You might not think they should spend that money in the way they choose to. I don't think my son should spend as much money as he does on designer trainers, but it's his money and it's his choice. Mm. Yeah. And having that and reintroducing that freedom to choose, I think, is one of the the, the major themes of your work. There was something. um, What was And you would find if there was no. This is an argument I constantly use. If there was no state welfare and no state education and no state health care and people were left with money in your pocket, you would find that a lot of people would spend that money on on health care and welfare and education, not just for themselves, but for people in their local societies who were badly mm. off. Because the responsibility to do that would be theirs now that government no longer exists. That's yeah. a basic human urge to to look after his fellow men and as i say there'd be some people who didn't give a toss but there'd be a lot of people who'd give a huge amount of toss and would dedicate their lives to it and in a free market environment they would produce much better outcomes and much better systems than government provided welfare and healthcare, which is a disaster because hmm. it's so politicized apart from anything else so in daylight robbery you, you one of the things that you you talk about and and make clear in the book is is how a lack of transparency in taxation and in how government pays for things has created a whole lot of problems and how you you, you talk about that there's a, an amazing example of the American Civil War and the real cause of the American Civil War, um, which I found absolutely, I mean, there's some great chapters in the in the book on, on other topics, but that for me was, was one of the most fascinating chapters i just wonder if you could take us through the um just the background on that story yeah it's a real eye-opener and um the we're taught that the american civil war was fought over slavery and the north went to the went to war with the south or the south went to war with the north because they wanted to maintain it the, the issue was slavery Now, slavery was a huge, huge economic issue at the time, huge. And in the North, it didn't exist. And in the South, it did exist. But Lincoln stated that he had no intention of imposing northern slavery laws on the southern states in his inaugural address. That was not his intention. And, you know, the South knew they couldn't beat the North in a war. The North had twice as many people and this army was twice the size. It knew it couldn't, but it was only defending its own economic interests. And then you read about the history of taxation over the previous half century. And one of the things I with Daylight Robbery is the principal argument of the book is that behind every great event, there is a tax story 
and it is often an untold tax story. And when you start to look at the world through the prism of taxation, so much becomes clear why stuff happened as it did and why things are as they are today. That is one of the core principles of the book. And so, for example, every war in history was funded by tax. Every revolution was arising up against some kind of injustice perpetrated by the tax system. Tax is control, tax is power. If a king or an emperor or a government loses a tax revenue, they lose their power. And you're just not taught it. But there was a, for since, ever since the first part of the 19th century, the American federal government was funded by tariffs on goods entering and leaving the United States. That was 90% of federal tax revenue, something like that. And it was the southern states that paid 90% of those tariffs because they would sell their cotton or their tobacco or their sugar or whatever it was uh, into Europe. And then Europe would trade goods with them in exchange, essential you know, equipment and so on. And that was the trade. And then America went to war with England in 1812. It's a war you never hear about. And um, it was discovered that America was totally unprepared for the war and because it, it was reliant on imported goods from Britain. And they dried up. And because of Napoleon and everything else, Britain had too many, its attention was split. And so it ended up, I, I think I, technically we lost that war. But we gave up. And America was like at the time, you know, the, the United States was new. Uh, they'd only just been formed 20 or 30 years earlier. Um, you know, they were worried about going to war with Britain again. And they were like, we have to make sure that we can produce our own equipment um, because otherwise we're in trouble. And so there was a huge movement to fund northern industry in the northern United States. to so that they could produce the goods they needed if in the case in the interest of national security and this new tariff was brought in in 1816 called the dallas tariff and the southern states agreed even though they were paying 90 percent of american taxes something like that they agreed because they recognized the need for national security and then four years later by 1820 the threat had gone away and the southern states were like, no, 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 we don't need to pay as many tariffs now. And the northern states who were enjoying the growth in their industry as a result of southern subsidies were like, no, 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 you've got to carry on uh, paying these tariffs. And the northern states had just enough control over Congress where they would win their ways. There would be a few swing states. And this became it became known as the 30 or the 40 year tariff war. And this just became an ongoing area of dispute between the next 30 or 40 years is the levels to which tariffs should be paid and who should pay them. And it was always the southern states that paid them. Agriculture was a huge, much wealthier industry then than it is now. And the northern states kept imposing these tariffs. And so the, the southern states were effectively subsidising the north. And there was this huge economic shift and loads of the population moved north. Um, in search of these opportunities. And the southern states felt that they were paying all these taxes and getting nothing in return. And it was a huge, huge bone of contention. And when Lincoln came to power, even though Lincoln said, I am not going to impose slavery on you guys, they knew that he was going to impose these tariffs on them and they'd had enough. 
And that is why they wanted to secede and form their own Confederate states. So protecting slavery was a huge, huge issue. And um, the southern states wanted to keep it imposed. But it was not the reason that that America went to war. And by the way, I know the southern states fired the first shots at Fort Sumter. But Lincoln provoked them into doing that was a deliberate ploy because he knew that they had to fire the first shot for him to be able to go to war and have the moral high ground. And, you know, if you think the northern states are so worthy and so great, well, you know, as soon as the war was won, you had segregation, which was, you know. If they were so worthy, great, you would never had segregation. And. The Emancipation Act only came in, I think it was 1862, towards the end of 1862, when Lincoln was using the war and he emancipated slaves because he was trying to um, sow discontent in the southern states so that the southern states' um, uh, energies and attention was diverted inwardly rather than fighting them. And so, you know, I don't believe the northern states actually went to war over slavery they wouldn't that you have to look at the opinions that were around at the time they would not have had themselves killed over that issue it, there was two bodies were fighting over their economic interests and the tariff war that led to the american civil war is a side of that story that is never taught and i would say it had a it was a more important factor in that war than slavery was Afterwards, you know, revisionist history, history is written by the victors and so on. When they had to say, look how great we are, it was, the narrative was changed. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of historians who maybe don't agree with me will go, listen to this guy, he's just imposing his narrative on history and so on and so on and so forth. And, you know, maybe I am, but read the chapter and, and look at the world through this prism of taxation and you're like, because I think one of the reasons the American war is still, even today, so argued about, particularly in America, is people can't, still can't. There isn't a sort of, why did this happen? It doesn't make sense. And then once you look at it through the prism of taxation, you're like, ah, I get it. Mm. Yeah, and it, it was it was a, well, a revelation in that when you look at that example of, but look what he, what retrospectively has been portrayed as a um, an ethical or principled act. It turns out to be a war about economics. The British had already made slavery illegal by whatever it was, 1830, whatever the year was. So it was 30, 25, 30 years illegal. Um, and, you know, Britain had all its navy blocking the, the ships going across the Atlantic and so on. So Britain was always already more than doing its bit to stop that practice. What had enabled Britain to do that? It wasn't just the the uh, altruism of the Victorian people. It was the Industrial Revolution. So now we have machines and machines were able to do the work of slaves to a higher standard. To, um, and maybe not um, in, in the case of machines, the Industrial Revolution, we're not talking about slaves. We're talking about the workers who came in from the farms in Britain, the serfs and so on. So it was machines that affected ended, effectively ended serfdom in Britain. And the increased productivity and the increased wealth that those machines enabled 
enabled us to then go go and fight slavery elsewhere you know because we could afford to and but in the plantations of the southern states there weren't yet machines that could do that and so human beings being what they are they got slaves to do it but very soon we would have had automated combine harvesters and tractors and all the rest of it so there just wouldn't have been any need for them so it's my strong view that even if slavery had remained illegal in the southern states it wouldn't have been long before it was abandoned anyway because of machinery mm. yeah is it, you know it's um, just not an economic it, it it's not a slave it's not it might have been an economic way to run a farm before we had machines but as soon as you've got machines you know you use the machine yeah yeah so it's 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 everyone it you know it's progress and innovation and technological advancement that ended slavery more than uh you know the british uh legalization uh, the british making it illegal or the uh, abraham lincoln it's progress that ended it mm. and it's progress that will end third world poverty and it's progress that will make all of our lives better and so we need to create a society that allows for the most possible progress which is low tax great innovation freedom of speech freedom of thought freedom of movement um freedom of all these things which all eventually come down to how much you're taxed thank you for listening to this part of the interview with dom frisbee for more information be sure to check out the links in the show notes especially his youtube channels and his new investor subscription service. Also check out the other episodes when they are released. So until next time, keep reading. Thank you for listening to the Shepherd Walwin podcast. To explore these ideas further, be sure to visit our website, www.shepherdwalwin.com and join our mailing list for news and special offers. Check out our authors and buy the books to learn more. And you can also find us on social media. Links are also on the website. And if you like the podcast, please head over to iTunes or Spotify to give us a review. It's surprisingly helpful in getting the ideas out there. So until next time, keep reading.